Welcome to the New Zealand Tech Podcast, presented by Paul Spain and guests. Right now with uh, Alec Ross. Alec, uh, welcome to uh, to New Zealand. Uh, thanks. I just got in here last night, here for the next couple of days. Excited to be here. How do you survive with all the, uh, all the travel? Oh, gosh. I don't know that I am surviving. No, in all seriousness, the way that I survive it is that the actual work itself is awesome. And so if I were out doing boring work or work that I didn't find fulfilling, it would probably break me in two. But the fact that I actually get to do work that... I'm passionate about and that is that I know is important that makes it easier so tell us a little bit about what you do who you work with and what what your role entails sure it's my job to bring a little punk rock to America's foreign policy Uh, no in all seriousness my job is to help to figure out how we can put technology and innovation in service of America's foreign policy goals you know, America has its strengths and its weaknesses, but one of our one of the things that we're pretty good at is we're usually pretty good at tech, and we're usually pretty pretty good at innovating. Um, and so, if this is one of the things that we're half decent at, then then we ought to figure out how we can use it to address really tough foreign policy challenges. So it's my job not to be a guru or to be anybody special, uh, so to speak, but rather to help organize the community of techies who are out there who would love to put their technology savvy to work, their geekiness to work, uh, to help with foreign policy challenges. Now, you've been too, uh, involved in you know, a lot of uh, projects and things right around the world. What are the things that you're personally really passionate about? What are the things that get you excited about this job and about the opportunities for using technology globally? Sure. I, the one thing that probably gets me the most excited is internet freedom. Uh, when the internet was built decades ago, it was built ba- based on an end-user to end-user principle without intermediation. There was nobody in a white shirt, red tie, and pinstripe suit determining who got to say what to whom. And so I really believe that we have got to fight to keep the internet open, to keep it as uncensored as possible, and to make it a, a, not a completely frictionless space, but a space where lawful activity can take place uh, without a lot of government mediation. The second thing that I'm most passionate about is education. Uh, I I really think that we are very, very early and just beginning to recognize the potential of the net as a way of delivering world-class education to people. I, I was a I used to teach 12, 13, and 14-year-olds in a very impoverished part of the United States in Baltimore, and we taught with these really ratty 35-year-old textbooks that were all beaten to death. And today, in that same classroom, there's an internet connection, and the kids don't have to be bound by what they can learn in a 35-year-old textbook. We can bring the world's best educational resources directly to them. So internet freedom and education are two things that get me most excited. 
And what do you see the opportunities for that on a, you know, I guess on a more global basis in other parts of the, the world that are uh, maybe not as well off as what the U.S. would call impoverished? So I think that this is one of the most exciting things. Uh, even in the, some of the most impoverished places on planet Earth, uh, mobile connectivity is connecting people to the Internet for the first time in a way that was previously unimaginable. Uh, I've done some traveling, for example, in the East Congo, uh, which has a per capita gross domestic product of about 300 New Zealand dollars per person per year. So that is less than a dollar a day. It's one of the poorest places on earth. And in this place, one of the most poor places on earth, there's a 42% mobile penetration. And so what's beginning to get me excited is that with with internet-enabled mobile penetration beginning to go up in very poor places, this gives some infrastructure, something you can build on to help deliver life-changing educational services. So it's early, but there's some hope there. And what sort of things have you seen in countries such as um, Congo uh, in terms of the use of technology and how that's actually you know, practically helping the communities? I'll give you one very concrete example, and that is in mobile money. So this is something, for example, that we saw really take off in Kenya. In Kenya, you're not going to see banks uh, with tellers and, you know, big, beautiful facades and, and, and other such things suddenly showing up on, main, on the main boulevard. Uh, but what's happened, what happened in Kenya, which has since spread to Tanzania and Uganda and must, much of eastern, eastern Africa, is mobile money. And that literally means that people can use their mobile phone to do their payment systems. And it's really had a big impact. In Kenya, for example... Uh, which has historically had a huge challenge with corruption and with other such things, the average household uh, incomes in households that adopted mobile payments went up between 5 and 30%. That's a big deal. If my salary went up you know, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25%, I'd really notice it. And so a lot of people are much better off financially in Africa because of mobile finance. That's great. Now, um, we, we're seeing the rollout here in New Zealand of, uh, of fibre internet to the home and to businesses and schools. Uh, yeah, that's obviously a big leap in terms of performance from the traditional connections we've had with DSL, which themselves were, were a leap from traditional dial-up. Um, are you seeing any particular areas where driving the faster and faster internet delivers benefits to communities? I think it's interesting. I think, first of all, it makes video easier. And, you know, video can be used for entertainment and other such things, and that's all, all good and well. But if what it can also do is enhance the effectiveness of sales forces, so that instead of having to get on a plane in Auckland and fly to Sydney and then connect to Singapore or Seoul or somewhere else to be able to do business, if you do have fiber-powered connectivity, then suddenly your sales force can become more effective and can connect to people who may b- want to buy that good or service that you're developing in Japan, South Korea, Singapore, Indonesia, China, without your having to get on an airplane. And so this is one thing that I think can be very good and very important as New Zealand becomes a more fiber-rich country. And if we look out, uh, look out sort of you know globally. Um, 
you know, it's still fairly fairly new in the US, so there's not a lot of homes that have got uh, fiber yet. And we've seen, uh, you know, Google launching you know, gigabit fiber to the home. Um, do, you, do you think that will make a, an even more dramatic difference? Because that's sort of, a, you know, even more steps, steps ahead. I think the United States has got a long way to go here. Uh, I think that in terms of when it comes to broadband access, I think we need to have a measure of humility. We're only like 15th or 16th in the world in terms of connectivity. So I don't think it would be at all appropriate for the United States to sort of beat its chest and say, oh, we're the best at this, because we really are not. And where I actually think that we could do best is to actually look at how other countries are deploying 21st century infrastructure. And while I do think that there are some good things that are happening in terms of you know, the fourth generation 4G wireless networks, some of what Google has done, some of the broadband networks built by AT&T and others, I actually think that we need to not be arrogant and think that our connectivity is the best in the globe because it simply is not. Okay. Now, if we were to you know, step back and look sort of forward where things might be heading with in the digital world and the technology world over the next sort of five to ten years, um, have you got some sort of picture of things that you're imagining that the world might look like in the areas where we're really able to take advantage um, of tech technology, um, not just to help with business, but, you know, on a, on a broader basis. Yeah, so I think that I think that there's some good and bad that comes from this. And let me actually start with the negative. I actually think that I, one of the things that's worrying me is the increasing level of surveillance that's taking place around the world. So one thing that I imagine is that in five years, I actually think that there are going to be real challenges to the traditional notion of privacy. I think privacy standards are going to be really challenged by hyperconnectivity. So that's actually one negative that I see looking years into the future. Uh, one positive, though, is I think it's going to be easier to be an entrepreneur, uh, whereas before you may have had to raise millions of dollars to start a business and bring a product or service to market. I think that with open source code, with Moore's Law, with, uh, with computing becoming more powerful, uh, by the day almost, I think that the ability to create world-changing disruptive products and services and build a company around that is going to be easier. And part of what that means is that you don't have to be in Silicon Valley to start what becomes a big company. Uh, most of the truly game-changing internet companies developed in the 1990s in the first decade of the 21st century came from America. I don't necessarily think that that's necessarily going to be the case in the next four or five years. I think that America will still be able to produce some of these companies, but I also think that they're just as likely to come from New Zealand or from India or from China or from Singapore. So I think that a lot of the change that I see will be the wealth creation and innovation coming from new countries. And what are the countries that you're you're seeing that are really uh, you know making moves in terms of technology and and are sort of uh, you know getting what the potential is, although they might be you know well behind the eight ball at the moment. Uh, what, yeah, what have, what have you noticed out there? I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, I think that in the Baltics, in countries like Estonia, in 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 um, Sweden, in some of the northern European countries. 
I think that they have really made some very intelligent choices about how they're going to migrate service delivery, whether it's financial services, whether it's healthcare, whether it's education, and have moved it to the net in a very smart, aggressive way. And I think that that's going to have big economic payoffs in the future. I also think, let's go back to Kenya as an example. I also think that there are countries like Kenya that have very smartly invested in their infrastructure. And you now see these 24-year-olds, these 25-year-olds beginning to start companies. And they might start off with two, three, or five employees. But what I imagine is that in the future, in countries like Kenya that have such a strong incubator culture, I think that you're going to increasingly see these 25-year-olds become 30 and 35-year-olds with 50 and 100 employees. Okay. And looking forward a bit further now, um, you know, you're uh, you're still sort of fa- fairly young in your uh, in your career. I don't always feel young, but <laughs> I'll take the compliment. So, what sort of legacy do you want to leave if we look forward twenty, thirty odd years? What uh, what what sort of things are you wanting to you know to be known for? Yeah, I guess I don't think of it so much in terms of I as so much as I think of it in terms of we. You know, it's like a rugby team. You know, one, a, one player does not make a team. And I, I, I feel like right now working for Hillary Clinton, I feel like I'm playing for the All Blacks. Uh, but truthfully, you know, I, I try to take me as a person and the idea of my having a personal legacy out of it. And rather what I actually, what I actually find most meaningful is working with great teams. You know, first, you know, with, the, with my nonprofit that focused on bringing technology to poor people. Then on the Obama campaign, that was a great team. And now for the last three and a half years working for Hillary Clinton, I feel like this this is a great team that's creating a very positive legacy. And if I think about this 20, 30 years out in the future, I guess I would think about this less in terms of personal legacy than what I would hope is that I'd be a part of three or four more great teams that did something to bend the arc of history in the right direction, probably using tools of technology to make it happen. Cool. All right. And um, just briefly, can you tell us a little bit about your, your not-for-profit? How did that come about, and where does that sort of you know, fit into the picture for you Sure. Now? So it, it was called One Economy, and it was started, we started in a basement. Three and, myself and three friends started in a basement. It was an act of pure entrepreneurship. And it was really based on the belief that the economy was changing and that if you were growing up in the kind of community that I grew up in, which was it was poor and rural and isolated, that you had to become more sophisticated digitally if you were going to really make it in the 21st century workforce. And so we started this nonprofit, the purpose of which was to help close the digital divide, take people who are disconnected from the net and connect them, and then secondly, give them the skills so that once they were connected, they could actually join the workforce. I did this for eight years before coming into government. It's the, the nonprofit is still there. Uh, it's still working, but now that I'm in government, you know, the ethics rules has me, you know, just observing it from afar. Uh, but it's something that I'm very proud of. Okay, that's great. And uh, anyth- anything else that you would like to um, to share to sort of wrap up? Um, you maybe you could tell us a little bit about the um, what you're going to be talking about here uh, at the at the conference. Sure. So a lot of what I'm going to be talking about here at the conference is on how technology is disrupting power structures globally. And, you know, I think I'll give some examples of that. But in closing, if I were to close with one thing, I would say that one of the great things about technology is it allows people to stay connected even if we are 12,000 miles apart. 
And so I guess I would say to the people who are listening in today, to if you are at all compelled by the kind of things that I and my, the teams that I work with have been doing, then let's stay connected over Twitter at, at Alec J. Ross or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Alec period Ross one. Thanks a bunch. That's great. Hey, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Cheers, Alec. Right now with uh, Emily Banks from Mashable. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. How are you enjoying being in New Zealand? It's great. I love it. Um, wish I had a little bit more time to actually get out and explore, but um, beautiful country. Thank you. Well, um, tell us a little bit about what you do at Mashable and uh, and how you how you came to be at Mashable. Sure. Um, at Mashable, I basically manage the newsroom. Um, watch all of my multiple Twitter feeds to make sure there isn't any news that we're missing, um, make sure that I'm assigning stories that we need to cover. Um, also, I'm responsible for making sure we are covered very nearly 24-7. Um, we do. We have a staff um, all over the world. We have a an editor in Croatia, so he works the overnight hours. Um, and then when he takes his European holiday for three weeks, I have to make sure we have somebody covering those overnight hours. So that's part of what I do. Um, I'm also constantly watching to see which stories are performing well and that we maybe need to give a little bit more promotion to, maybe because they're not doing really well, but they're really important stories. So um, leveraging our social channels to share those stories again out to our audience. Um, and those are the biggest things um, that I do. And I came to Mashable um, in sort of a roundabout way. I always thought I would work at a newspaper and be more of a traditional journalist. Um, when I graduated college, I got a job as a reporter at a medium-sized daily newspaper, um, which that was right about when you were really lucky to even get a job at a newspaper. Um, and I did get it and got laid off six months later. Um, but I was okay with that. That it's must fine. have been a bit of a surprise. It was a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I guess you don't see those coming, but then they just call you into the conference room and they're really bummed, but got to do it. I was, you know, the youngest, newest hire, and um, but it was okay. Um, I tried to make the best of that experience, and I actually kind of took a step backwards and did um, an internship in live television um, wow. at Georgia Public Broadcasting. Okay. So I packed up and moved to Georgia. Um, I had been in Minnesota and Wisconsin before that. Moved to Georgia, um, did that internship. And because it was in public television, they weren't hiring after the internship ended. Um, so then I took a job as a reporter at a twice-weekly newspaper um, in the suburbs of Atlanta. Uh, so I did that for a while, and then I packed up and moved to New York and didn't have a job and went through the whole like trying to find a job on Craigslist and it is so exhausting. And um, I said, okay, I'm going to take a break from applying for jobs. And I found a blog that I could freelance for and um, they paid decent for articles. Sure, so I did right. that briefly yeah. and dog walked in Brooklyn for a few months. And then um, I had a friend who was working at Mashable and we had worked at our college newspaper together. Um, and he was the community manager at Mashable. 
And I made him take me to every Mashable event and introduce me to all the editors. Um, and I weaseled my way into a job as copy editor. Um, and so that's how I started at Mashable almost two years ago now. And you've moved up pretty quickly from there, right? Yeah, which is <laughs> a, the great thing about Mashable. Um, if you want to try something new, they let you. Um, so I helped create things like our ethics guidelines and... Um, ways to add a little bit more structure. And because I guess I was the only person um, who wanted to do it, keep track of what days everybody's off and who is on on what days and do we have enough staff for these days? Um, so I guess I just kind of fell into that position. Um, and so now I'm where I am kind of managing the newsroom. So, That's fantastic. Yeah. Great. So um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, what it's like working working for Mashable.com, which mm -hmm. is really at the you know forefront of you know breaking a lot of news, reporting a lot on a lot of news, um, in particularly the tech world. Uh, and so you know it must be a, a very much a, um, a, a digital newsroom with with a fair few differences from the, you know the newspaper environment you started in. Yeah. Um when I walked into Mashable's newsroom, which looks like any traditional newsroom um, with the cubicles and all the computers, we do have, everybody has two monitors for the most part, which is a little bit different. Um, but I walked in and it is weirdly silent in the newsroom, um, which if you're used to a newspaper, it can be pretty loud and boisterous. Um, and I was like, Jesus. Do these people not like each other? Why don't they talk to each other? <laughs> and then I realized it's because we pretty much do everything in chat rooms. Um, so we assign stories through chat rooms. We keep track of where they are in the edit process, um, if they're about to be published. All of that is communicated through chat rooms. And partly that's because we have so many people who work remotely, like Stan, who's in Croatia. And then we also have a staff on the West Coast. So that's the easiest way to communicate with everybody who's all over the place. Um, so that's one of the ways um, that it, it's different from more traditional news organizations. Um, but it's also so much more fast-paced. Um, I could assign a story right now, and then um, somebody will turn it in in an hour, and it'll be up on the site five minutes later. Um, so it's much more fast-paced. Um, we do try to be fairly thorough about making sure we're editing stories at least twice before they're published and then after they're published um we go back and have somebody copy edit them um after and that's just the, that's just the pace of publishing now isn't it right. you know once it was a very long process to get something published it's going into print then it takes a long time to print you know you've got no chance it's got there's so much more work that had to be done right yeah, yeah exactly so it's it's far more fast paced. Um, and it's really, that's really fun during events like an Apple product launch, um, where we will likely have people on the ground at the event. Um, maybe they're live blogging and they're taking photos. Um, but if they're live blogging, they can't also be writing news stories. So yeah. it'll be all hands. Everybody else is at their desk, um, following along in the live blog. And they're probably watching what people are saying on Twitter. If we're not lucky enough to have a live stream, we'll be watching the live stream. Great. But then we'll be in the chat rooms assigning stories as they're coming out and say, okay, you take the by the numbers story, you take the new specs on this new product story, and somebody else will be building a gallery, you know, slideshow of the photos mm -hmm. that are coming out of the event. And somebody else is just watching Apple's 
product and press pages to see when they're updated with new product images. Um, so there's a lot going on. Oh yeah. <laughs> how many how many people are there in the the, the team at Mashable now? Um, we have seventy people altogether. That's including sales and the business side. Um, I, you know, I'm not sure. I think we have about. 50 of them are in the New York office. Mm. We just have a handful of editorial, um, about four people in editorial on the West Coast. Mm. Um, we've grown a lot. There were about 30 people, I think, when I started two years ago, and now we're up to 70. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. And what are the what are the tools of the trade now? What are the things that you know you find that help keep keep you at the forefront and and to be able to deliver on these really short um you know time frames to to get from hearing about something to when you know you've got it online you know quicker or faster than somebody else or you know how do you do how do you do that well the first part is probably um being able to keep track of all the stories that are out there so I personally use Hootsuite to keep mm. track of um, different Twitter feeds. Um, and I have feeds, I have one feed that tracks like just what our competitors are publishing and tweeting. And I have another feed that's just what um, industry leaders are tweeting. Um, and I have my own personal feed, which is a little bit more um, general news yeah. and um, things like that. And so being able to create Twitter lists and... Mm, mm hashtag, you know, lists on Hootsuite is really helpful. Um, so that's important. Um, a lot of staff at Mashable also use TweetTech instead of Hootsuite. Um, so that those are great tools. Um, we've been playing with some new tools. Um, my favorite new tools are um, Social Flow, which is kind of like Hootsuite, but um, instead of telling Hootsuite um, when to tweet, Social Flow, you can tell it when to tweet that it will be the most well-received. So yes, um, yeah. you can set it to optimize and it will say, okay, well, based on what your Twitter followers are talking about right now, now's the best time to send this tweet as opposed to in five minutes or 10 minutes ago. Um, so that's a really neat tool. And they have a um, WordPress plugin that I'm really excited to get to play with um, because then when reporters write their stories, they also can craft the tweet that will go with it. And instead of having to copy and paste into Hootsuite and all that, um, that'll be be built right in. Mm. Um, And then another tool that I'm really excited to use more of is Optimizely, um, which is a tool for doing A-B testing. Mm. Um, And it's super easy. It doesn't require any um, development skills, which I really don't have. Um, But I can very easily test two different headlines on a story on the homepage and within 15 to 20 minutes, find out which um, headline is getting more clicks. Which is working best, yeah. Yeah, so those are my favorite new tools. So tell me, what are the secrets to to getting the stories that, that you get before anyone else? Is it, yeah, what are the, what are the, what are the tricks behind that? Yeah, I think it's the same that's, hasn't changed from more traditional media. It's, you know, having your contacts and working them and, um, and I learned this when I was at this little newspaper outside mm. of Atlanta, mm. that it's about just building those relationships. And for me back then, it was going to the county government offices and just stopping in and saying, hey, how's it going? What are you doing today? People will just tell you stuff that mm. they probably shouldn't. And it turns out to be a really interesting story. And we have to continue to do that. But now it's with you know Facebook and Twitter and Google and Apple. And some of those companies are 
kind of notorious for not letting anything out. So you really have to work your sources and just be willing to call people up and say, hey, how's it going? Yeah, and it does seem to be a little bit of a, a changing world. You know, we've, you know, Apple have been pretty tight for a long time, but we usually have a reasonably fair idea mm-hmm. these days on what's coming. Um, one of the recent ones uh, from the Microsoft side, we've seen them closing up a little bit, is the Surface where, you know, Nobody seemed to know anything, right? Until, yeah, you know, right up to the right up to the minute. Yeah, we really had no idea what that was going to be. I mean, we'll get the invitation and it won't say anything. And I think that one um, product launch was actually in LA, which is weird. And a lot um, of people didn't go because, look, I've got three days' notice. You haven't exactly. You, know, you don't give us is. any hints. Yeah. Um, and for us, because. Our office on the West Coast is in San Francisco. We don't know. Should we send two people? Should we send three people? Is one enough? You know, we really had no idea. That was really kind of tricky, but it turned out to be a fairly big story, and everybody was really excited about it. So, I mean, that's quite an interesting one from a from a coverage perspective and from, you know, where things are going. We seem to have a lot of, uh, com- you know, uh, innovation and competition now, particularly between Apple Google, Microsoft at the moment. What do you think, what's your sort of pick on uh, on how Surface and what Microsoft are doing with Windows is going to be accepted into the market? A lot of people are sort of saying, oh, businesses aren't going to touch Windows 8. You know, other people are really excited about the, you know, what the tablet's going to do. What do you, what do you think from the people that you've spoken to and just your own opinions? I think Microsoft Surface has a really good chance, um, especially with the Apple-Samsung ruling, um, that it might open the door a little bit more for Microsoft to get a foothold into the tablet market. Um, it will be tough to beat the iPad, um, and it should be interesting to see what Apple continues to do into this fall. Um, there are some rumors that they might have some more um, products, maybe an iPad mini. Um, so that could get interesting. I think um, the Windows phone has been fairly successful, um, and there are people who get it, are getting to the point where they don't want Apple products anymore. So I think Microsoft has a strong chance. Interesting. And um, look, looking looking forward next year, are there any sort of trends and things that you're um, you're picking up on or expectations of uh, of what what we might see coming into the market? Oh, what will be coming into the market? Um, I'm just really curious right now about what Apple's going to do. We also. Um, got invitations to a mysterious Amazon event. Um, I I think that's in a couple weeks, maybe next week. Next week, I think, Um, So we don't know what that's going to be. Maybe new Kindles. um, That could be interesting. Yeah, it looks like September's going to be a big month with releases sort of right across the board. It sort of seems once Apple sets a date, everyone else (laughs) has set all these other dates around it. Yeah. Yeah. And what's your what's the f- sort of tech that you use day to day? What do you enjoy using? Um, personally, I use Apple products. Um, I have a getting a little old MacBook, um, an iPhone, and an iPad. Um, now that I've committed to those, you know, I'll probably stick with it since they can all sync together so easily. Although I did get the notification that I won't get any more Chrome updates on my MacBook because it's so old, um, so I might be due for an update there. <laughs> Fair enough. Cool. 
All right. Well, thank you very much for your time, Emily. Uh, I've enjoyed it. And, um, yeah, we'll look forward to following what you do at Mashable.com. Where, where else can we track you down? What's your uh, what's your Twitter handle? And my Twitter handle is MJBanks. So it's spelled E-M-J-B-A-N-K-S. Okay, great. And are those the two best places to find you? Or do you have a yeah, separate blog as well? Yeah, you can find me on um, – you can also subscribe to me on Facebook, and that's – Facebook.com slash MJ Banks again. Okay. Uh, my blog, I haven't updated in some time. So. Okay, we'll let you off the hook on that All one. Right. I know what that's like. <laughs> Great. Thanks for chatting. Great. Thank you. Cheers.